Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, I'm trying out a new episode format. It is a discussion show. So it's a conversation between myself and my old friend, Derek Reimer. And we talk about a number of topics. We talk about the value versus the stress of Twitter and social media in general, the pros and cons of remote work. We talk about Cal Newport's new book, Digital Minimalism. And then we wind up talking about Josh Pigford's blog post uh, on the Bear Metrics blog that's titled, I Almost Sold Bear Metrics for $5 Million. What I like about this episode format is it's pretty casual and we're covering topics that I think are relevant to many of us and that a lot of us are thinking about. I originally thought of structuring this as some type of news roundtable or you know a, a show where we're talking about topics of today. And while we kind of do that with a couple things, I think the ability to introduce topics that aren't necessarily news articles or, you know, news headlines also works. And the fact that Derek and I know each other as well as we do really helps with just the rapport and the conversation. You know, it's not not stiff or stilted. So I hope you feel the same way about that. If you don't recall who Derek Reimer is, he and I have known each other for years. We met back when I lived in Fresno and he was a young kid who was participating in a startup competition that I was the judge of. And he won a couple years in a row. And then he was thinking about starting to do some consulting work. And I said, look, why don't you come write some code for Hittail? Later on, he wrote all the early code for Drip, later on became you know retroactive co-founder of Drip. And so he and I have known each other. We've worked together. He's been on the show several times talking about he had started an app on the side called Code Tree that he sold for $128,000 a few years back. And then he moved to Minneapolis when, when we sold Drip. And so he and I now live six or seven minutes apart. And we see each other once a month or so. And it's always, it's always a good time to hang out and chat. And so I wanted to mix up the format just a little bit and do something that's not an interview and, you know, not keeping up with Mike Tabor and not just question and answer, but actually just bringing topics to the table that I think might be of interest to you. And so let me know. Let me know what you think. You can tweet me at Rob Walling, or you can email questions at Startups for the Rest of Us, or you can post a comment on this episode, episode 482, and just say, yeah, I enjoyed the kind of the mix up of the show format and, and the fresh ideas and the conversation. Or you can say, ah, got five minutes in, didn't hold my attention. And, and I was out. And that helps me think about and consider maybe we add one of these to the, to the lineup every couple months. You know, and it doesn't always have to be Derek. I could bring on different kind of co-hosts and folks to, to weigh in so we have different perspectives. And with that, let's dive into the show. Derek Reimer, thank you for joining me on the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah, this is, I think this is going to be a fun one today. Um, just kind of talking through some interesting topics. I had a few in mind you know, over the past couple of weeks, some things have come up where I'm like, you know, I really want to discuss these with someone and, and I don't know who to, you know, kind of bring on the show to do it. And then you and I were having dinner last night and I was like, man, we, we were just, we got on some really good conversation topics. So I figured we could uh, jump on the mic and record a few of these. Yeah. I mean, we both had a couple old fashions, but uh, we probably should have brought our mics to be I, honest. I, know. <laughs> I, I agree. So yeah, you, I mean, one thing you kicked off with was just talking about I mean, something I think is on a lot of our minds is is like social media in general, but Twitter specifically, because that's kind of big in, in our circles and the value versus the stress of it. Yeah, I mean, it's for me, like my personal journey with it has been like, you know, it's kind of the last the last remaining piece of social media that I really use these days. Like I've kind of kind of given up Facebook. I technically have an Instagram account, but I don't really use it. And I'm not really like hooked on checking those things. But Twitter is is 
tricky one. And I think it is for a lot of people in, in the tech space because, you know, it's where a lot of our industry news is coming from and where a lot of the camaraderie among software developers and, and startup people is happening, you know, and there's not really, to my knowledge, another platform like it. There are like niche communities in Slack and things like that. But Twitter is kind of the, you know, the public square for that. And so it's, it's always been, it's been a struggle. I mean, I think for the last few years, I've been saying like, yeah, I've given up all social media, but I can on Twitter because, you know, that's where, that's where like work stuff happens. But I've just become so aware that for me, and I think it varies from person to person how they how they deal with it. But for me, it's like Twitter is always the default. Like I hit a rough spot on something I'm working on. And what's my first inclination is to go check Twitter, go get a dopamine hit. And I'm just I'm kind of over it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Do you still have it on your phone? I took it off my phone, which has been good. And I actually I did another trick where I put all my apps in one folder. So now I just have like a blank, a blank desktop screen essentially on my phone. That also like I, I keep email on there, for example, because I just want to, you know, I want to be able to do email mobily, but I don't want it to be like something I compulsively check if I have a break during my day. And that's been a good, a good way to, to deter that. When you put them all in one folder, what does it just make them hard to find? Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I had muscle memory built for like, I knew where to tap my thumb subconsciously to open email, you know, and, and now it like adds friction to that. Yeah, yeah, I do that with... I'm compulsive with email and Slack, specifically the the tiny seed Slack. I don't do it with Twitter or Facebook. And I've never really had that problem. But I definitely, I can see getting into that habit and I've tried to avoid it. I think the thing with Twitter, man, is like I check Twitter a couple times a week. And I think that's a pretty, for me, that's a pretty healthy balance. I might post to it more often. A few months ago, I was posting every day and I kind of fell off, fell off that wagon. I'd like to do that again. But yeah, checking it all the time is not healthy, right? I mean, that's, what, that's kind of what you were saying last night. It doesn't feel good, right? Because you're, you're going for the dopamine hit of, of what? Like someone replying to you or a conversation or likes or retweets? Yeah, it's like, it's like I don't know if I'm feeling particularly like just unsure about something I'm working on or just my business in general, you know, all these existential like <laughs> mini crises we have all the time in the building startups, then that's like a, a, an easy place to turn where like, I'm going to share some some piece of work that I'm doing and it's going to have some marketing benefit. It's going to increase awareness about what I'm doing and hope, you know, people will spread it around and maybe someone new will discover my app, you know, so it's like I can justify that there's some benefit to it. And so then I'll share something and then it feels good to get like people liking and engaging and commenting and but it's it's pretty hollow and it's pretty just it's a veneer that's that's providing like kind of an, a short term benefit. But there's not really I, I don't think it's the healthiest way to engage with that. And then when you don't get the kind of response that you were hoping for, well, then you feel bad. And it's like, why am I doing this in the first place? You know, this is not this is not a solid way to go. Yeah. And the struggle is that it's not just the social aspect. Like I know you got off Facebook years ago and I think it was easier to justify because there was no work component. There was no way Facebook was going to help you build or grow a company, right? Whereas Twitter might, you know, and might, I want to put in italics and bold, like might is really, it's like I, we know folks who have built kind of personal brands on Twitter, social media empires. I don't know of anyone who has built a SaaS app and the marketing was all Twitter, right? It was like, I view Twitter as being this really just the 
you can get a small audience and you can get that first, those first few customers, or you can get the first people who are going to give you good feedback. I mean, it's part of just building kind of that, that relationship with people. But realistically, I think once you have any type of product market fit and you're actually trying to build a scalable marketing approach, like Twitter is not it, right? If you're looking at it purely as a utilitarian thing, I, there's definitely times and places to, to do it and be on it. But it, with all the negatives, it does, it does feel hard to justify to me. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a lot of Twitter, I mean, you can definitely come into it with a strategy of like, I know the best times of day to post where I'm going to maximize engagement. Like I kind of figured out some of those things for for myself. And so some of it you can kind of apply methodically. Other parts of it, it's like a lot of benefit that's come to me has been kind of serendipitous. And I think that's where I have a little bit of fear that like, if I were to give this thing up, I I don't know what I'm giving up entirely, you know, like I don't, I don't know what kind of random encounters or interactions I might be missing out on. And I think that's where the fear comes. It's like, you know, this could be the thing that catapults my nascent startup into a different realm, you know, if I were just there engaging in the community on Twitter. And but that but in reality, like, I've become pretty convinced that's, that's probably not a very good reason to, to accept all the, the negatives, you know. To keep doing it. Yeah. You make a good point because it isn't just finding customers, but what about that one relationship you build with, you know, the kind of business development, right? Where someone says, oh, let's integrate, you know, we're web hosts, let's integrate with Static Kit. And you're like, yeah, that could actually, that could move the needle. And that's what you're saying is it's like, do I want to miss out on those? What's the potential? And that's where they get you. Yeah. That's where social exactly. media gets you, right? <laughs> exactly. Is it has, it has all these negatives and yet, and yet we still want to, still want to consider doing it. Yeah, if I think back, I'm frustrated by how many like Twitter DMs have actually led to productive kind of business meetings or or chats. And it's like, why does this have to come through Twitter DM? Because that's just making me, it's reinforcing that I, that I'm like the struggle to actually get off of there because people would have to find my email address or something. Yeah, it seems like, and it does seem like Twitter has declined pretty substantially in popularity. That's been my sense. And just the number of people on it, like I obviously the tech community, the Silicon Valley, plus the kind of microconf and just startups in general, I think are on there and the press, right? It does seem like a, there's a lot of journalists and, you know, and not just like TechCrunch, but like Wall Street Journal, you know, like big, big name journalists are on there. And and there's certainly still some value. I mean, you know, remember Arab Spring and, you know, there, there is communication there that I think there's value to the world that that stuff's able to get out. But it's not, I mean, it, it really does seem like people have moved on to Instagram and what are the others? Snapchat, although I guess they're having problems now. You mentioned TikTok last night and I was like, yeah, I've heard of that. No idea what it does. Oh, <laughs> such the old guy. Yeah. We're getting old. <laughs> so what are you going to do? I mean, we, you know, people, I, if you've listened, like I was asked on stage, like, are you bullish or bearish on Twitter? And I was like, bearish, you know, this was last year. I predicted, I was either my 2016 or 2017 prediction. This is when Twitter was still going strong. I was like, I just don't think this is, I think there are going to be too many trolls. You know, I think people are just going to move on. And so I think the nature of social media is that it's pretty rare for a platform to actually stick around for that long, right? People just move from one to the next. So I don't love Twitter and struggle with a lot of stuff on it, although I am still on it. And I think there are benefits, especially now that with the microconf stuff and the podcast and all that. So I'm not going to quit Twitter anytime soon, even though I do have, have some struggles with it. But I'm curious, you know, you are serious. It sounds like you're seriously thinking about getting off of it or quitting it, basically. Is that is that right? Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting dangerously close to that. Yeah. And so I think for me, like the big, my big fear is it's like, what, like, how am I going to keep kind of a, a similar type of connection to people in the industry who I'm not so close with that I'm like, you know, texting or, you know, private messaging all the time. Like, how am I going to maintain that? How am I going to still get like 
up to the minute news about stuff. Like I see a lot of, you know, things in the React community, for example, like new things emerging or new releases of things. And a lot of that I'm getting through Twitter right now. And like, it's kind of important for me to know about that because I'm building tooling in that ecosystem. And like, I don't always want to be the guy who's like a month behind late to the party knowing about stuff. But I think... I think a lot of these, you can kind of think of it as like, well, is that really, is it really so bad if you're a few more days delayed in finding stuff out? Probably not. And so I think in that case, it's like, for me, I'm trying to look for like, what are some like digest newsletters, for example, that are in the industry. And I'm already part of some of these, like the change log is one of them. They send kind of a weekly summary of what's happening in the open source world. And there's one for the Jamstack community too. And, and I'm on that one and I get a lot of good info, info from that. And I think these are probably good enough for the news part. And I think, you know, for me, it's like, how am I going to kind of keep connection to my quote unquote audience? I mean, I think the podcast is a good is a good one sided way to do that. And then uh, again, returning back to like, the fundamentals, my email list, my newsletter list, like, how can I invest there, the time I maybe would have spent on Twitter, carve out some of that time to try to like, invest that in the email list. And so those are those are some of the ways I'm thinking about it, you know, I think those are good alternatives. Yeah, I was going to propose that mailing list and a couple of those other things. So there's the bottom line is, yes, there, you may miss out on some things, but take the time and invest in stuff. I would say like invest in stuff that is less ephemeral. That's what bothers me about social media is it's just here today and gone tomorrow. It's not a blog post. It's not a, even a podcast episode people can go back and listen to. It's not a book, you know, that people will read for years. And what can you, you know, with your email list, if you can invest in the email list and and repost that on the blog, because email is a bit ephemeral, even though it's a pretty deep connection. But it's like, that's when I've been off, because I was not, I mean, the entire time we were doing drip, I was not on Twitter at all. And that's just a, it was the right choice. And then yeah, I didn't quit it for life, though, I came back. And obviously, I do, I'm a little more active on it now. But I, I do hear what you're saying. And I, I think, if you tried it for, you know, two weeks or 30 days or something, and my guess is you're not going to want to go back. Well, that's, and that's a, that's a good segue because I've been reading a book, Cal Newport's latest book called Digital Minimalism, uh, which is kind of like a deep work. A lot of people know about that one. And it's kind of deep work principles applied to more of your like personal life and how you interface with things like social media. And one of the things he, he talks about in there and recommends doing is, is like a, a digital declutter. That's kind of a, a term he coined for it, but basically like taking 30 days and eliminating the things that are causing you problems like social media, you know, that are that are pulling at your brain and, and causing you to be distracted and, and all the all the negative side effects that come with it. And it's like, he's like, think of this as a you're, you're eliminating all this stuff. And then at the end of it, you know, be really deliberate about what you add back in. Don't think of this as just like a temporary detox, you know, where like, I'm going to remove it all. And then at the end, I can, I've reset and now I can go back to the way I was doing things. And so that's kind of what I'm, I'm in, in the midst of one of those right now, where it's like, I'm not deleting my Twitter account, but I'm not checking it. I kind of started this off going on a, on a trip where I had very little internet access. So that kind of forced me to, to step away from it. And even coming back from that after, you know, five days, I already had much less desire to go check it. And it just, I do feel a certain amount of Zen just from just from that. And so that's kind of becoming a reinforcing thing already for me. It's like, like, good, the more time I spend off of it, the less the less drive I have to go and, and check it all the time. And it's been healthy, I think. Yeah, that's cool. How long you been doing that? Since really the turn of the new year. So we're about two weeks in. And yeah, it's been it's been good. Yeah, it's a trip when you change habits like that, huh? How it's scary 
you don't know if it's going to work. And then you get in a few days and suddenly you feel this clarity, you know, and then trying to come back to it. Yeah, I've, I've done this with, I don't know, like, like drinking alcohol or social media or just anything that is kind of like, well, I enjoy it. There's pros and cons to each of those things. You know, it's like, well, when I, if I have an old fashioned, I feel better. And I like in the short term, it's a, it's a good thing, much like checking Twitter. And then in the long term, it's like, I question the value of, of doing that and going off of those things. And then coming back, you just realize how much it impacts, you know, your day to day or just how it actually affects your life. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were saying last night, because I haven't read Digital Minimalism, but you, you kind of piggybacked on it and it got you thinking about remote work. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a thing that, that he spends a, a fair amount of time talking about in the book is, you know, what does it mean to have relationships and have real connection with other human beings? And I think this is heavily tied in with the era of social media, the era of text messaging, you know, the fact that we, we rarely call each other anymore. We are always texting, you know, there's just, there's all these kind of norms that have established in society. And, and a lot of it is around lower fidelity means of communication, right? And so it's like, he makes a good point. This is based on some, some research he pulls in to, to his thesis, but it's like, we're wired. We've after millennia of communicating with each other, with each other talking to each other and, and being able to read you know, non-verbals and verbals and the whole, the whole picture, right? And now we're kind of reducing our communication down to, to very binary things. I mean, if you think about what's a reaction in Slack or a like on Twitter, it's, it's literally a binary piece of information. And you compare that to all the richness that comes with someone, someone reacting to something in person, you get to see their face, you get to see them smile or see them look inquisitive. And there's just so much more you can get from it. And I think, yes, it's like, in, in the one sense, it's almost you could think of it as more efficient, right? Using using these productivity tools like Slack. But on the other hand, how much communication are you missing out on? And what does that do to the to our mental state? And he makes some pretty some pretty interesting points that like, you know, there's there's high rates of of depression and mental health among college students in, in the generation that kind of, you know, grew up with smartphones, right? And that's starting to become really evident. There's been some research at universities about this and like just a really sharp increase in a lot of these issues that weren't that weren't a problem before. And so you take all that, bundle that all up, and I start thinking about like how are we how are we architecting companies? How are we building teams? And I feel like a struggle that you have building a, a hundred percent remote company is, you know, how often do you really have that high fidelity communication with each other? And so that's that's kind of what got me thinking about that. It's tough because I always like my personality is I want to go against the majority opinions. You know, it's like, hey, everyone's raising venture capital. Cool. Then I'm going to go start one without venture capital. And that's going to be a thing that I talk about. Or, hey, all these Fortune 1000 companies or even the venture capitalists, they all want you to be located in one place. Cool. Then I'm going to go start a remote company, right? That was that was kind of what what you do. And, and it's a natural, kind of a natural thing that I want to do. In addition, you know, we we have the, the remote book by DHH and Jason Fried. So it's definitely a thing. And we know tons of of startups, especially in the more the the non venture track space um, that we ride in, that are that are remote, and there's advantages to it, right? You can hire people in cheaper locations. You can hire the best people around the world. You know, everyone doesn't have to be local. All this stuff, and I see the value of of that for sure. But I've always said that the situation we had with Drip, where half of us were in one city, and I would have loved for all of us to be in one city. We just couldn't find the talent in Fresno half of us were in one city and we were in the office like two or three days a week. That was my dream setup. And I wish every job <laughs> that I work 
in every company I, I run, you know, because now with Tiny C, there's there's three of us, and then with Microconf, there's two of us, and we're all remote. And you know, while I don't think we should all need to live in the same city, and it wouldn't even be practical because again, we wanted to hire the best people, and Einar and I are co-founders, and he's in California, and I'm in Minneapolis. But like, I would love to see them once or twice a week in person, which is what we did, you know, back when we were doing Drip. And I think that's that's so healthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It felt pretty ideal. I mean, it was like, the nice thing was we were setting, we could write the rules for the, how this worked. So it was like, there was inherent flexibility. We weren't always in on the same days every week. If, you know, some life happens and you need to be, you know, out of the office an extra day a week, no big deal. But like to kind of have that as the default, it felt really good. Like hopping in front of a whiteboard with Ian Nance, you know, and getting to, getting to work through some tough problems. And like, I don't know, I just, I think I was never able to, reproduce the same the same benefits over digital means and maybe that's you know maybe someone still needs to solve that <laughs> maybe we'll get there yeah that's the question is like will vr solve that at some point i mean you imagine if vr was super super high fidelity and you and i could look around and literally feel like we're in front of a whiteboard together and get social cues you know to where it's uncanny valley type stuff like you know you see these amazing video games or even i don't know like a pixar movie right and i mean the humans look human enough that you can pick up you know all the stuff like if you and i could be in a room and it, it literally looked like that maybe Maybe that would do it. You know, it's a bummer. I, I mean, some of the things I enjoyed the most were like lunches, you know, and hanging out. But I don't know if you need need that. So maybe that's the point where it where it's solved because video chat isn't enough, right? Zoom Zoom is not enough because you're not going to sit on a Zoom call for two, three, four hours and shoot the breeze and do the mo- you know get those moments that that you need. Well, and that's the thing. I think a lot of this, a lot of the way, the way we're thinking about building companies and the the tools that we're building for them. You know, it's it's introverted Silicon Valley type engineers who are who are like kind of helping architect how we socially interact with each other. And I think there's an inherent bias in that. And I think the fact that like we're all about using tools for productivity. And I think a, an important part of building a healthy team is like actually having relationships. And that has nothing to do with direct productivity. That's more of a that's a long ball type of type of thing, right? If we're going to build cohesion, we're going to be able to go to lunch together. A friend of mine shared this anecdote, like coming back after, after like kind of a long break and catching up on work over the holidays, his wife was, was relaying this to him. And she said, well, yeah, it was not a, it was like, how was work today? She was like, it wasn't a great day, but I got to see my friends. And it was like, whoa, that's, that's powerful, you know? And that's something that you don't necessarily have if it's just a show up and be productive. And if, and if your day is not productive, then do you feel like you've had a good day? Well, if you get to see your friends, you get to see the people you've built relationships with, then perhaps you'll feel a lot more well-balanced, you know? Yeah. And that's, you know, Slack, you get the emojis and you get some fun stuff shared in a random channel. That's fun, but it's, it's definitely different. And it's hard, you know, think about, you know, with Tiny Seed, we are a remote accelerator. And so this is an issue, you know, and we get together three or four times a year, which is, and those times are really, really cool when we're together. And there's a lot, there's a lot of kind of bonding that happens being in person. And so that's, that's something that, that we're going to be facing and trying to overcome for sure. I think in a perfect world, again, I would, I just like seeing people more often. I think, and I'm pretty introverted too. I mean, yeah, to your point about Silicon Valley people building tools, introverted Silicon Valley people thinking that remote work is, I don't know, I won't say infallible, but that it is like the ideal 
I don't think it is for most of the world, you know, or I don't think it is, especially for the extroverts, for people who want to be around other folks. I think the loneliness and isolation is, is absolutely being shown. They're doing research on it. You know, there's, there's going to be a real swing here of, I think personality, it depends on personality type. I think there's a lot here that I, it's not as clear cut as just saying, well, here are the pros of remote work and therefore we should all do it because I, it's not nowhere near that clear cut. Yeah. I feel like I'm starting to look at a lot of these things that I previously saw as absolutes and I'm starting to see a lot more gray in them, you know, and like, I don't know. Yeah, there's there are benefits, but there are also drawbacks and you have to weigh them against each other. One cool anecdote that was from Cal Newport's book, he talks about the Amish and he talks about how a lot of people just kind of assume that it's this community of people that decided arbitrarily like this is the peak of technology and we shall not accept any more technology right and that's kind of what that's kind of what i've thought for many years it's just like yeah it feels very arbitrary like why why is horse-drawn carriage better than car i don't know like it's just a form of technology right but he talks about how like if you actually learn about their culture they always just kind of they evaluate technology they're very open to it but then they also evaluate like the pros and cons against their value system and they like looked at cars back in the early 1900s and they tried them out for a while and then they determined that like, well, people who are driving cars tended to leave the community and go to neighboring cities and engage with people outside of the community. It kind of led to a breakdown in relationships. And they just decided like, this is just not coherent with our values and so we're not going to do it. And I think there's something really powerful in like kind of being open to looking at pros and cons and weighing them against value system and what you're trying to do. Yeah, and that's the thing. There are so many fewer absolutes than we would like. And they talk about how... I don't know, it's like a sign of a sign of intelligence is being able to hold two conflicting ideas in your head at once. And that's really what both of the things we've just talked about is, you know, Twitter and social media conflicting there. It's really, there's a lot of pros and cons. And same thing with, with remote work, where I think if you're not thinking about, I think you can get a little too gung-ho in either direction. And, and I think that it's situational and, and having the, the willingness to really think it through on a case-by-case basis and then to see the realities of it and to know, boy, no matter which choice I make, neither is ideal. I think that's the hard part, right? Is that neither one is ideal. They're going to come with pretty major cons and figuring out how to work around them as best you can. So, hey, last topic before we uh, before we wrap up today. Did you read that article? Josh Pigford almost sold Barometrics for $5 million. He said, I almost, yeah, that, that was the title. I almost sold Barometrics for 5 million bucks. He published it about six weeks ago. Yeah, I did check it out. And it was a it's a pretty interesting read just because you don't generally see this level of transparency about something like almost selling your company, right? So yeah. it was it was pretty fascinating to see someone kind of kind of outline their thought process and what was going on through that. I know. Super gutsy to do it. I, th- I mean, I think that's why it's because there can be backlash. Like if you sell it, obviously it goes public that you sold it. But if you don't sell it and you talk about doing it, I mean, you, there's danger there, right? You could have customers leave. You could have employees be upset or whatever. So, you know, kind of kudos to him for, for sharing that and sharing his thought process because it sounded tough, man. I mean, really tough process. Um, I think to start with, I really liked, he kicked it off and he said, there's always a price. I think, I think some people get too hung up. I think a lot of people, I'm never selling my business. Why would I sell my business? I've, I just don't know. I don't think that's the right choice for most people. Like if you can become independently wealthy, why would you not do this, you know? And I don't hold it against people, certainly, if you're going to keep your company, but don't just say something out of principle or out of some belief that this is the right thing to do to never sell your company. Like, think this through. Now, it's easy. Let's say I was running a company that's doing 50 million a year and I'm pulling five or 10 million a year right off the top, which is totally easy to do with SaaS because it's so profitable. 
And if you really enjoy what you're doing, then yeah, selling your company for $250 million or whatever, I don't how much is it actually going to change your lifestyle? You know, you could afford a jet or whatever, but if you don't want that and you're enjoying what you're doing, why would you do that? But most of us are not in that situation. So if you're running an app doing a million or five million a year, you know, somewhere in there, like you're not pulling that much money off typically. And typically at that stage, you are in danger of writing it over the top of the growth can die. We can have a recession. You could get killed by a competitor. I mean, there's all these things that, that could happen. And, you know, selling a company for a three, four, five X revenue multiple, which, you know, Josh was offered 3.75 revenue. So you're doing 2 million a year and you're going to sell your company for, what is that? Seven and a half million dollars. Like that is absolutely life-changing. If you're making, if you're making 150, 200 K a year, and suddenly you can sell it for that, like life-changing in the in the real sense of the word, like it will change your life. You have options that you never knew you had at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of this kind of talk of like, why would I want to sell the thing? I'm working on my best idea. Like I, I can't help but think of the base camp guys. And that was kind of their narrative for a long time. And I feel like nowadays there's a lot more nuance coming from them, which is really refreshing. So Jason Fried was at microconf. Was it last year or the year before? Yeah, last year, yeah, 2019. Yeah, talking from the stage and like he he kind of, well, one has been has been much more quick to point out the fact that they early on took took some money off the table enough to where him and DHH were millionaires, uh, you know, after a couple of years and felt like, okay, we've at least, we've we've made a healthy amount of return off this business. Now we can kind of, kind of ride it for longer. And I think a lot of, a lot of founders kind of go in blind and say, why would I want to ever want to sell my company? And yet you, what usually ends up happening is you're not, you're not as financially rewarded up front as maybe you would be if you were taking your raw skill set and going and having a salary job, right? So you're foregoing a lot of, a lot of money you could be making a lot of opportunity cost. And you're kind of just, you're sinking that in, you're investing that into your equity that you have in your company. And if you do end up five years down the line, things are competitive, whatever, like market conditions. And now suddenly you can't achieve profitability, your company, you're unable to sell it when you really want to. And you find yourself not able to extract a return from, from all the investment that you've put into it. Right. And so I think for Basecamp to say like, why would we want to sell? Well, because you, you were able to take some money off the table early on. And then he also kind of compared now Basecamp to like, it's as if I've won the lottery and I'm taking the payout over time as opposed to the lump sum. And that totally makes sense, right? Yeah, the odds of them going out of business or something is infinitesimal. And they get to work, they love their jobs and they have built a great team and they get to build whatever they want, right? They're they're building base, what, Basecamp version three or already built that. And now they're, you know, Jason Fried was talking a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, like they're launching two new things this year. So they really are a kid in a candy store. If I were them, I wouldn't sell either, but I wouldn't tell other people, you know, or, and I know they don't tell other people not to, so that that's not something, but I, but I do think that people hear that and then take it upon themselves to think, well, I, I respect Jason Fried and DHH and I want to be like them. So I'm not going to sell my company either. And I don't think that's smart. I, th- I think you should evaluate. Again, I think they, if I were Jason Fried, I would not sell Basecamp either because that sounds amazingly fun. But if you're not in that situation <laughs> where you're tens of millions a year in net profit is what he said, right? Uh, from the market comp stage. You know, it's like, if you're not in that situation and maybe you don't enjoy your job or maybe you're in a really competitive space and you think that you, you could flatline. Once your growth flatlines, your sales multiple plummets, you know? So there's there's a really good time to sell. And if you write it over the top, suddenly you're selling for 1x revenue or less. And if you're 
doubling every year, you're selling for four or five X revenue. I mean, it's a huge, again, it's, it can be a life-changing amount of money or not. So I'm not encouraging people to sell. I would never, I, I don't, I, I think you should do what you want to do, but just th- really think this through. And that's why I'm glad, I mean, back to that whole article we were talking about, like Josh basically says like, hey, there's always a price. I wasn't really that open to it, but he got an offer for $4.95 million. And it was like, wow, that could, that would, you know, change my life. And then he talks about just how, it was a dead end and the the buyers had claimed they had the money, but in actuality, they got him under LOI, letter of intent, and then went out and tried to raise money from investors. It was, it was pretty dang shady. Yeah, it was not cool. So that must have been very, very hard. I can only imagine if that had been like, if that had been the case when with our drip story, because I just know how how much stress we were under and how how long or you especially because you were really bearing the brunt of it but like how long the process was the due diligence stuff just get just get even getting to LOI I mean I'm glad that it moved a bit faster like things didn't drag out a year and then like and then you know Josh discovered this like so I guess on the in that sense it's good that it, it didn't go on too long but even even for as long as it did I can only imagine how much you build up all this anticipation you you start to think well this is this is looking like it's going to happen. They're, they seem very serious about it. Like everything I'm hearing from them seems good. And it's really hard to, I, I think, shift your mind into the gear of like, I'm about to have a life-changing exit. And then for that to be torn away, I mean, it's just, it's really a mental struggle, I think. Yeah, he said, we'd spent nearly $20,000 on legal fees, months of time gathering all the docs, and they just disappeared. It was crushing. I was and still am furious with them, they wasted an epic amount of our time and money and then crawled into a hole when they realized they couldn't do the deal. Yeah, crushing, I think, is an understatement. I would have probably crawled into a hole for like weeks. Because yeah, your momentum's going. Once you've, it's a hard decision. It's one of those really hard decisions to make. But once you make it, you get this sense of peace about it. And then that's all you want. And you you almost, I mean, I remember almost hanging onto it too much. And because you don't know if the deal's going to go through until it's all signed. And so a month before, you know, we were selling drip, it was like, I'm so ready to sell this company, but I can't say that out loud because then if it doesn't happen, I'll be crushed. So definitely feel his pain. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's tough stuff. I don't know how you could like combat that. I mean, you, you have to enter the process. You have to trust what people are telling you initially. And, you know, he had counsel, he had like, you know, advisors and stuff. So I, I wonder like, how can you avoid that from happening? Or can you? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I certainly did not and do not believe that I personally could. You would have to be someone of real fortitude <laughs> to do it. I do like, he, he links over to another article where he says, five things I learned failing to sell my company. And one of the things he says is avoid needing to sell. And this is something I think a lot of people forget is like, if you need to sell, if you're a desperate seller, like you will have terms that are not as good. And and always having the ability to say, hey, we are growing, we are profitable, I don't need to sell. Like those three sentiments, they'll get you the best price. You know, that plus getting competitive, you know, a lot of different offers, but like that puts you in the driver's seat. And it's the same thing with raising funding, right? Unfortunately, so many people go out to raise funding when they really, really need funding to do anything. And nobody wants to fund those companies. You know, they want to fund the companies that don't need the funding as as paradoxical as that sounds. Yeah, even on a small scale, like when I sold CodeTree, 
this was happening at about around the same time that the drip sale was going through. And it was like, I was so focused on kind of the drip stuff that was going on. And this was just kind of a side, a side app that wasn't really growing much, but was still like a, just a nice side income for me. And I decided, you know, it was kind of time to, to not have to worry about that anymore. But even just having that going into that with the mindset of like, I want to sell this thing because like, it seems like the right time to do that, but I don't have to like, I could, it could just keep kind of running on the side for a while and no big deal. Like even just going into the negotiation with that attitude, I think the sellers then later on wrote kind of like wrote a blog post about how they they felt like they were kind of at a disadvantaged position because they could come in and say like, no, we really want $20,000 off. And I was, my broker was like, no, we don't need to do that. And I'm like, cool, then tell them no, like, we're just not going to do that. And then ultimately, you know, so I think, yeah, trying to keep that mindset of like, if this doesn't go through, no big deal. I don't have to do this. It helps. Yeah, having your back to the walls. Never good. Whether you're selling a car, <laughs> selling a house, you know? I mean, if you're in a big hurry, you you just get a, you know, you get a worse deal. So so kudos to Josh for that and you know, for sharing. I mean, I think these are helpful things because, you know, again, so many people don't talk about it. We you know when deals fall through like this, because it could have negative repercussions. But that's something that I do love about our community is that people are often willing to share experiences to help others avoid this, the mistakes they've made, you know, as we say in the intro, I mean, whether it's avoid the mistakes or just to understand, yeah, if I get in that situation, what will I do? Or what is this really like? Because that's the other thing is, if you have not heard these stories, if you haven't heard Josh, or you haven't heard you and I talk about selling drip or, you know, any, I'll say a real startup acquisition, then all you've heard is that on TechCrunch that Instagram sold for a billion dollars to Facebook over a weekend, you know, when they had seven people and I don't know, not much revenue. And it's like, wow, that's how startup acquisitions work. And it's like, no, they never do. Never. You know, it's like one in 10 years does that or something. The real startup acquisitions are, they take a long time. They're a grind. They are typically for a revenue multiple or a net profit multiple. If you're, you know, running a different type of business or at a smaller uh, revenue scale, there's just a bunch of pretty common things that are realistic. And if you're not, if you don't know that, and you've only read the kind of the pop articles, you know, the popular articles about the outliers, yours sale is probably not going to be an outlier. So kind of level setting expectations with, with, you know, this post that Josh wrote, I think is, I think is good. Yeah. A helpful piece for the, for the community archive (laughs) for sure. Yep. Indeed. So thanks, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it was a, it was a blast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if, if folks want to keep up with you, you release an episode every week, podcast episode at The Art of Product, you and your co-host Ben Ornstein. It's a good good bootstrapper podcast over there. And then you are at Derek Reimer on Twitter, but I almost <laughs> I hesitate, yeah, hesitate to send people yeah. there, but it is what it is. Yeah. Twitter and DerekReimer.com newsletter sign up there. That's probably the one. Yeah, that's almost what we should recommend more. DerekReimer.com. And I know you've blogged a bit over the years. I think like all of us probably wish you blogged more. Yeah, it's always the thing. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. The, even it's interesting to think about trying to do more like higher frequency, less like trying to spend 10 hours writing, you know, a piece and think of it a little bit more like Twitter. I mean, that could be an interesting thing too. Mm-hmm. Sounds good, man. Cool. Thanks. Thanks again to Derek for coming on the show. He is working on his new startup. It's called Static Kit, statickit.com. If you're working on static site stuff or interested in that whole ecosystem, he's building some pretty interesting tools for static site builders. 
So if you have a question or even a topic for the show, a news item, just something that you think is interesting that you'd like my or a guest's take on, you can email it questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or you can attach it as an audio question or leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690. If you're not already subscribed to the show, I'm actually kind of surprised, but head over to uh, any podcatcher, search for startups and we should be in the top three or four. If you want transcripts of these episodes, head to startupsfortherestofus.com. If you have not yet left us a five-star review in your podcatcher, please do so. It would mean a lot to me and it helps the show rank higher, helps us get more listeners, helps me stay motivated to keep producing the show week after week. We have a theme song. It's an excerpt from a song called We're Out of Control by Moot. We use it under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I'll see you next time.